Before there was the World Wide Web, there was Xanadu. Project Xanadu, that is, which was the first ever hypertext project. Started in 1960 by Ted Nelson, a technologist, philosopher, sociologist, and the man who coined the term hypertext, in addition to numerous other neologisms, including transclusion which is a word that refers to the embedding of one document inside of another document via hypertext, the term hypermedia, which refers to the nonlinear expression or presentation of images, videos, audio, and hyperlinks, and the word teledildonics, which refers to virtual sex between people who are connected digitally. And in its modern iteration, these people quite often each have a physical stimulation device of some sort, which may or may not be controlled by the other person, also digitally. But back to Xanadu. I've discussed Tim Berners-Lee and his contributions to the modern world on this podcast before, and I've talked about how his invention of the World Wide Web, which many of us conflate with the internet as a whole, but which in reality is just the portion of the web that isn't email or file storage or servers, but rather websites and things like that, including those which allow us to send emails and access file storage and control and set up servers in some cases. But Berners-Lee implemented the first successful hypertext transfer protocol communication, the HTTP protocol, between a client a computer, that is, and a server back in 1989. He also developed the hypertext markup language, or HTML, which is a fundamental structure of the web. This structure that Berners-Lee created, though quite revolutionary at the time, is still seen by some, very much including Ted Nelson, as just a watered-down ripoff of what Project Xanadu was meant to be 20 years before the development of the World Wide Web. Nelson envisioned an easy-to-use operating system that made use of his quote-unquote zippered lists, which is what he initially called documents embedded within other documents, which would allow a person to read a book, let's say, and then open up new books within that original book if the author of that main document wanted to include the secondary one inside of their own using hypertext embedding. This may sound like a familiar concept today based on what we can do with the modern internet, but the sorts of embedding we're used to is still a somewhat different thing from that which Nelson initially imagined. The links that we use today on the internet, for instance, are one way and consequently are very often broken and have no option for dynamism in that regard. You can go in and change a link if the site that it points to changes, but this is not always feasible as a website can have thousands or millions of links depending on the scale, and all of them are prone to change without notice. Project Xanadu's solution was to build two-way links so that each connected piece was aware of the other and could change dynamically 
as the pieces on either end changed. You might say it was context-aware, and that allowed these connections between these component parts of the system to be much more information-rich than what we see on the web. Project Xanadu never really took off the way that Nelson wanted. Some people claim this failure to launch is the result of overambition or a lack of technical proficiency on Nelson's part. Others claim it simply wasn't the best possible option, and Berners-Lee rightfully won the race to build a popular hypertext-based network because his idea was just better. Project Xanadu is finished today, or at least a version of it is available online, and has been since 2014. You can read through the rationales on that site for why it is purportedly better than HTML and HTTP and all the things that tie our machines together today. And some of these rationales may actually be true, though to me personally, the use cases for this, for Xanadu and what it offers, are a little bit fuzzy. This may be my subjectivity coming through as somebody who has been using the web and non-Xanadu operating systems for so long. But it doesn't seem like Xanadu does anything that we can't accomplish, though perhaps more circuitously, with our existing tools. And this is tangentially connected to what I want to talk about today. We'll start with an article about hacking and move on to a discussion about something else that is very often debated and very subjective. Art. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is brought to you by its wonderful listeners. If you go to letsknowthings.com and click over to the contribute page, you will find an array of different options, different ways that you can support the show. This can mean monetary contribution through PayPal or Venmo. This might mean sharing it with a friend or with your social network of choice. It might mean leaving a review up on iTunes so that other people can see that this is a show that people enjoy. Whatever path you might choose, should you choose to take such a path, I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much to everyone who has contributed in some way, shape, or form, and thank you in advance if you are considering doing so. Another great way to support Let's Know Things is to check out our sponsors. Sponsoring today's show is Audible. Audible is the world's largest online depository of audiobooks, and if you want to give their service a shot, you can go to audibletrial.com LKT. Again, this helps support the show, but it also gives you a free month of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice from their vast library. If you are lacking a book to spend that free credit on, by the way, Stay tuned till the end of the show, and I will give a book recommendation. And this episode is also sponsored by HostGator. HostGator is the hosting company that I've been using for many years. If you go to hostgator.com LKT, you will receive a special discount that they give to listeners of Let's Know Things. All right, let's get back to the show. The article that I want to unspool today 
was published on a blog called Learnt Email, and it's entitled When Fictional Worlds Are an Accurate Representation of Internet of Things Security. This article focuses especially on the Internet of Things, which is the low-power connections, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, things of that nature, that connects all of our devices to each other and that web of devices to the Internet. So it focuses on the IoT, but it also widely applies to tech security as a whole. And it discusses this topic through the lens of a video game that was recently released called Watch Dogs 2. And in this game, you play a hacker that is the protagonist, and you are, as this hacker, wandering around the San Francisco Bay Area trying to take down the city's surveillance web. You are part of a larger hacker group, and you gain popularity based on the tasks that you complete. And it's an open world game, which means that it's not linear, and you can complete those tasks in many different ways, depending on your playing style and creativity, using a bunch of different tools and types of attack, different hackerly options that you have available. And essentially what this article does is go through those different powers that you have as this hacker protagonist to see how legit they are. And the conclusion, sorry for the spoiler, is that these are relatively real. These are things that you could actually do. These are not fantastic superpowers given to this hacker. These are real-life possibilities that are being utilized within this game. And that is particularly interesting to me. The focus of this article is that so much time and attention has been invested in ensuring that these fake video game superpower hacks are real, or at least real feeling, like they're based on real things that could happen, even if the way that they're done might be a little bit faster than in real life. Real hackers were consulted during the development of the game, and they provided actual means of accomplishing these in-game actions. And even the snippets of code shown on screen are real. This isn't an entirely new thing. A lot of movies and TV shows portraying hackers are mocked for their very often hilarious representations of what hacking is. The 1990s movie Hackers comes to mind as something that is laughably unrelated to what actual hacking looks like. But more recent shows like Mr. Robot have apparently done a laudable job in showing something a little closer to the real deal. You don't install an app and immediately take control of a city's power plants or become involved in graphics-heavy combat with opposing hackers in a virtual space. Real-life hacking is mostly about coming up with clever ways around seemingly unpassable structures by making use of errors that were built into those structures, and in some cases manipulating people so that they give you their passwords or information that they need to get your password. The topic of hacking, as it relates to the Internet of Things and our generally interconnected world that we live in today, is particularly relevant right now, as it does seem like every month a slew of new internet-enabled devices hits the market. And though some of these devices require that Wi-Fi tether to operate, I've spoken about the growth of audible interfaces like Siri and Amazon's Alexa in a past episode, for instance. Those require the ability to 
call home, to call a server in order to operate and to produce their primary function. A lot of these connections, though, are just gimmicks. They are upgrades to convince consumers that they need a new whatever when their existing whatever still works perfectly fine. Most people don't have a compelling reason to buy a new toaster every couple of years, for example, but if you start slapping new Wi-Fi gimmicks on that toaster, there is a chance that a decent number of people will use that as a justification to not fall behind in terms of the latest toaster technology. Unfortunately, we're already seeing some of the negative repercussions of this let's connect everything because why not mentality that seems to be very popular within the not just electronics fields, but every single field that produces products these days, from smartphones to furniture to toys for children. A botnet built from the Mirai strain of malware, Mirai is the the name of the malware, crashed or congested a significant portion of the whole of the internet back in October. A botnet is a collection of devices that are connected to the internet, for example, a children's toy or a toaster, and then zombie-like, they are coaxed into moving as a wave against a target designated by whoever controls that botnet. Botnets are often created through the use of malware, in this case one called Mirai, which lurks around the internet looking for unsecured or badly secured devices to sneak into and possess. In this case, a whole lot of cameras and DVRs were infected with this malware, and the owner of that malware then pointed all these zombie devices at a company called Dyn, D-Y-N, Dyn, which is an internet infrastructure company that provides structural services to, oh, a few small sites you've probably never heard of, like Twitter, Amazon, Tumblr, Reddit, Spotify, and Netflix. Dyn's servers were so overloaded by the traffic coming in from these zombified security cameras and DVRs because there were just so many attacking all at once that the relative low power of these devices didn't matter. What mattered was that they were all Internet of Things devices that are easy to break into. In some cases, because their owners didn't change the default login settings or just didn't realize that they're vulnerable, or because the software built into them is itself just immensely latently flawed and flimsy. I'll link to an article on Krebs on Security, which is a website by a guy who knows about internet security. And in his article, he does a far more thorough write-up on this particular attack, which makes sense because it is his area of expertise, but also because he himself, his website was targeted by this exact same botnet, which resulted then in his hosting company dumping him because they simply couldn't handle that amount of traffic coming in all at once, and they could not risk it happening again. This is, remember, an amount of traffic that also crashed essentially the entire internet, so it makes sense that a server backing up just this one dude would not be able to even get close to handling that same amount of traffic. So think about that. Here's a piece of malware that hijacks a bunch of low-powered internet-connected devices, which are then amalgamated and weaponized and can be pointed en masse at anyone on the internet with a force that is enough to cripple 
a critical internet backbone service like that provided by Dyn. That's a fairly effective way to stop someone you don't like from having their say. You can prevent someone from saying something you don't want them to be talking about. It's also a good way to make companies go out of business, either by ruining their reputations for stability and security, or by increasing their expenses so astronomically that they cannot possibly stay afloat. Now consider that this Mirai malware had its source code released by its creator at the end of September 2016. That means that anyone with some know-how and a vendetta could launch a similar attack if they pleased at whomever they please. These devices then just became a little bit more dangerous than they were before. This story about Mirai and about malware and about the internet backbone and the security blogger who were attacked by it, it can be a little bit difficult to understand and keep up with just by reading about it. Firstly, because you'd be unlikely to read anything substantial about it, unless you are generally interested in techie stories and you are a regular on the techhead-centric corners of the internet, but also because the significance of it may not be clear when the main focus of most of the stories that made it into the mainstream press and outside of that more techie corner of the internet were largely about a Chinese electronics company called Xiangmai, which recalled tens of thousands of surveillance cameras which it produced and sold, which were very easy to hack and apparently played a major role in the Mirai attacks. This is definitely interesting and relevant, but it's also just one facet of the major story, of the bigger picture. And of all the stories that I was able to find about Mirai on these bigger news outlets, very few of them wrote more than a paragraph or two, and in some cases just a few sentences, down in the middle of the article about that larger issue, about the Internet of Things and about botnets and about malware and security in general, and what they might mean beyond this particular incident and beyond the business repercussions for a technology company in China. This, to me, illustrates one of the powerful things about fiction. Fiction allows us to feel greater empathy and imagine how it might be to experience life as someone else. It also allows us to feel happiness and pain that we might not otherwise feel, and it entertains us in ways that the real world often fails to match. But it also allows us to share information through stories. AAA-rated games, which are the ones that have the, the biggest investment and the most backing and the most people involved typically, like Watch Dogs 2, very often sell millions of copies. And the other high-end games like Rainbow Six Siege, which was made by the same company that makes the Watch Dogs series, Ubisoft, they can have over 10 million registered players. And so there's a large number of people buying these games. There's a large audience for them. But it's also important to note that these are not just people being quickly exposed to an idea before they move on to the next idea, to the next headline. These are people who are deeply engaged in a story and with a concept because they're learning how to use it. They're learning how it harms and helps them and what it means for the larger structure of the world that they are exploring. 
It could be argued, then, that in some ways, for some types of information, playing a video game could be a better method of communication than reading an article. I think the two work much better in parallel, personally. Having both of them is superior to having just one or the other. But I also think that there's a decent chance that someone who plays this kind of game will pay closer attention to real-life happenings that mirror their gameplay after being exposed to that in-game storyline. The Bader-Meinhof phenomenon is the term for what happens after you buy a new car, and you start to notice that same make and model everywhere you go. The world is not suddenly filled with newly purchased cars of the same type that you just got. Those cars were always there. You just didn't have any reason to pay attention to them any more than any other car. That make and model has been made relevant to you now, though, which in turn leads your brain to give them a higher credence when they are spotted in your environment. The same is often true with concepts that we're exposed to in fiction. It increases the likelihood that we'll pay closer attention to that type of information and subconsciously consider it to be relevant when we notice it in real life after being exposed to it in a fictional setting. I've absolutely noticed this myself, and it's even exciting in a way because I've experienced a lot of the ideas that you find in the tech world and the science world, for instance, within the context of a story first. So rather than simply taking in the data there in the article and leaving it at that, I suddenly have all these possibilities running through my head. Articles about treatments that reduce the effects of aging are not just interesting to me. They make me think about the possibilities and consequences that were demonstrated in Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars Trilogy. When I read about the guaranteed basic income schemes that are being experimented with around the world right now, they make me think about examples of post-scarcity economics that are demonstrated in the culture series and a very different version of that same concept that exists on Earth in the Expanse series. Interestingly, though not terribly surprisingly, I think, there's evidence that writing in a narrative fashion, that is telling stories, not just presenting data, can lead to more virality for the content being shared. A newly published work on the PLOS One, P-L-O-S One Science Journal, presents results of research that attempted to understand why some scientific findings received far more amplification, both in the media and within the scientific community, being referenced by other papers. The research concluded that the pieces that were written narratively, and in fact the journals that published more narrative work, were shared substantially more often and in turn became more influential than those that were a cold presentation of ideas on average. This is particularly interesting because this is scientific research being presented, not stories or even public-facing scientific results. This is work created by professionals, made to be read by other professionals, and yet the effect of narrative still seems to be measurably strong. People seem to remember and or find more compelling the results that are presented within a narrative context. That, by the way, is actually why I started this podcast in the first place. I felt that more people understanding more of the context around important issues 
would allow us not just to be more generally informed, but to actually see the interconnectivity between all the seemingly disparate issues that surround us, and perhaps better understand how we might pluck a string here and cause vibrations way over there in a seemingly unrelated space. That guy that I mentioned in the intro, Ted Nelson, coined another word back in the 70s for this, actually. Intertwingularity. Or to use his words for it, quote, everything is deeply intertwingled. In an important sense, there are no subjects at all. There is only all knowledge, since the cross-connections among the myriad topics of this world simply cannot be divided up neatly. End quote. I do think there are a lot of other approaches that can help us achieve this same goal, and some of these potential solutions are playing out elsewhere. The news platform, Vox, for instance, is one of many, and one of my favorite, of the new so-called explainer sites, which attempt in many different ways, using many different mediums and chunks of information, to explain why something happened, why something is happening, or why something is important. Another famous example of what I consider to be excellent context exploration is found in This American Life's episode entitled The Giant Pool of Money, in which subprime mortgages, an amazingly, agonizingly dull topic, are explained in an entertaining and memorable way. It's very much worth checking out. It's a good show in general, but that episode is particularly educational. Another podcast example comes from a relatively new podcast, but a really good one that's worth checking out called Flash Forward, which discusses trends and how they might evolve in the future, and which begins each episode with a little narrative play that shows how life might look in the future as a consequence of what's happening now. I particularly like this method as it combines narrative with facts and a discussion of the data, which makes the latter a whole lot more sticky and likely to lodge itself in your brain. If your memory functions optimally when you've got all these little tidbits of data attached to as many other relevant pieces of data as possible, narrative helps by attaching those bits to a wider variety of other bits, including emotional and experiential bits of data, which are apparently easier to recall, and resultantly, the data attached to them are easier to recall, spur of the moment as well. And so fiction and narrative, and art as a whole, anything that makes us feel, particularly when we can figure out a way to attach it to bits of information, of data, of things that we want to remember and that help us understand the world around us, becomes even more valuable than its default purpose of allowing us to feel empathy and allowing us to be entertained. Art of any kind, including fiction, is useful in that it helps us remember and understand, but it's also useful as a mirror. It reflects back at us our own concerns and our own fears and hopes. Look at fiction if you want to see what we're flipping out about culturally and what we worry might happen as a result of current trends. Godzilla emerged in the culture shock that followed the invention of nuclear weapons, but so did the X-Men, 
heroes and villains, strengths and weaknesses, the ability to make things better, and the capability to make things much, much worse. This means, of course, that art is also a means of expressing uncomfortable and unpopular truths that would be difficult, and in some cases illegal, to express in any other fashion. From the very earliest examples of writing and sculpture and painting and every other means of creation, we have instances of artists and artisans using their craft to satirize tyrants and delegitimize the powerful. There's a reason that authoritarians often burn books and ban films. There's a reason that it's not just academics and intellectuals and journalists who are rounded up in the early days of a dictatorship, but also the artists, those who might express something dangerous and in a medium that's not easily understood or controlled by those in power. This is why, by the way, the protection of creative expression is a vital necessity for any society that wants to maintain and protect any semblance of freedom. It's remarkable how quickly we turn on this concept and give it up and tear it down as soon as we see something that offends us, so quickly forgetting that anything with the power to do that, to inspire that kind of feeling in us, also has the power to inspire other sorts of feelings. And to ban one kind of art, be it a book with profanity or a painting with bare nipples or films that seem to encourage wildly unpopular ideas or illegal ideas is to hamstring our ability to use these same outlets for expression and to bypass repression at a time in the future in which they might be our only means of doing so. It's best to remember at those moments when you are offended by something that has been created that you do not have the right to not be offended in that in allowing such work to exist, in making that sacrifice, you are in turn perpetuating the free exchange of ideas and helping sharpen one of the mightiest anti-fascist weapons ever forged. So keep that in perspective. And that actually raises another important point, that sometimes truths or perspectives that we have trouble seeing in real life are made a whole lot more visible when seen through the lens of fiction and through art in general. Perhaps we can't see that our best friend is abusive to his girlfriend because everything we know about him fogs our perspective of his actions. Seeing similar acts committed by a character on screen, however, might make such abuse and what we need to do about it a whole lot more clear because it removes that real-life fog that otherwise exists in our minds. The same could be true of our governments and the people in power. It's easy to get riled up into an unthinking frenzy when we're pitted against the other during election season, which has become a multi-year event in some countries, including the U.S. And as such, it's easy to ignore the flaws in the candidates that we've decided to support because we're wearing those rose-covered lenses that supporters wear when they are under attack by an enemy who disagrees with them and who is clearly the worst. Seen through the lens of fiction and through art, however, the actions of these people that we support, or rather someone quite like them, 
can be a whole lot more transparent. These works can make their blemishes a whole lot more noticeable. And it can allow us to extrapolate what the consequences of their actions might actually be. Art allows us to see what relationships beyond those that we've tried in real life might look like and to understand how it might feel to experience lifestyles far different from our own. We have the opportunity through art to understand different customs and cultures and ideologies and psychologies and different time periods and different contexts in general. But mirrors only work if we use them, if we look deeply into them and see what's there, what's behind us that we never noticed before, what we actually look like and how our actions appear when they are reflected back at us. Art, when presented well, when created with care, has the potential to serve as a hugely influential or perhaps quite limited but still impactful means of sharing information and ideas and feelings and perspectives. It's one of the best possible tools that we have available for this, I would argue, and consequently, making the intentional consumption of it and ideally the creation of some flavor of it too, part of your lifestyle is something worth thinking about if it's not already. Art does tend to imitate life, and life does tend to imitate art. And that cycle spins round and round, endlessly reinforcing itself. Knowing that, if we pay attention, we stand a pretty good chance of noticing details in both that we would have missed if we had just watched one or the other. This episode of Let's Know Things was brought to you by people like you, its wonderful listeners. If you would like to help support the show, pop on over to letsknowthings.com and click on the Contribute page. There you will find a slew of different options of how you might help support the show. Everything from contributing some cash money to contributing some mind share, that is sharing it with your friends or family, with your various social networks. And you can also leave a review on iTunes, which is also quite helpful in bringing new people into the fold. A huge thanks to everyone who has already helped support the show in some way, and thank you very much in advance if you are considering doing so. Another great way to help support the show is checking out our sponsors. First sponsor is HostGator. HostGator.com slash LKT will net you a discount that they provide to listeners of Let's Know Things. And that discount applies to all their different hosting plans. Everything from the cheap little blogger plan that allows you to build a website and start writing and creating and popping a portfolio on the web at a cost of essentially nothing and with very little knowledge. Or you can dive in with some pro-level tools and do some developer jujitsu and produce whatever you like with something much harder core. That discount applies to everything on that spectrum. Check them out. I'm sure you will enjoy working with them as much as I do. That is hostgator.com LKT. And our other sponsor today is Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you will receive a free month of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice. And if you're looking for a way to spend that audiobook credit, might I recommend The Big Picture by Sean Carroll. 
The Big Picture is a great big book full of great big ideas, but the fundamental summary of it is a discussion of human meaning and purpose through the lens of naturalism. So rather than going through the lens of spirituality or faith of some kind, to distinguish or discern or define a sense of either large-scale ethics or personal morality. This book is more about looking at that which we can see and that which we can understand and that which we can measure and what those measurements and observations tell us about how we could or how we should be. And so consequently, it is a big discussion. There's a lot of very deep ideas and a lot of excellent explanation about the universe as we understand it so far. So there's some good sciencey stuff, some good tech stuff in there, but a whole lot of good philosophical stuff as well. Again, that is The Big Picture by Sean Carroll. Highly recommended. It was an excellent listen. And it's also, no doubt, a wonderful read. So if you want to pick that up at your local library, your local indie bookstore, on your Kindle, your Kobo, all great options. But if you want to snag that audiobook version for free, you can use the credit that you get by going to audibletrial.com LKT. Good way to support the show and a good way to get a freebie as well. You can find out more about me by going to colin.io, where you will find a list of my books and some information about the projects that I am involved in. You can also find my blog at xllifestyle.com, and you can find me pretty much everywhere on the internet at Colin is my name. You can find out more about the show at letsnotethings.com, where you can also sign up for the weekly newsletter, which contains a bunch of links to interesting things. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode there as well. You can also find Let's Note Things on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at Let's Note Things. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.